the guests that we're going to be having on pretty soon is David Picciuto from the YouTube channel Make Something, and he has a podcast called Making It. And I was listening to an episode recently in which he and the other co-hosts did this exercise. And so I want to do this exercise, the two of us. Okay. First, you say what you think your biggest strength is. <laughs> and then I tell you what your biggest strength actually is. And then I'll say what my, I think my biggest strength is. And then you'll tell me what my biggest strength actually is. Oh, that's tricky. Right? <laughs> so it's like biceps or like triceps, dude? Like... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, you start. What do you think yours is? So two come to mind, right? Mm. One is, I think, what is probably the truer one, which is that I have a great ability to envision how I want something to be mm. and dream big, right? And that's why I think that this is like a, a nice adjacent topic to chasing the dream. Yeah. But I also think that that couples with one of my greatest weaknesses, I'm not going to call it a flaw, but it is a weakness mm. where I often struggle a lot with like getting resources together and with executive function and bringing things to fruition. Mm. So I have this great strength of being able to envision things as bigger than they are. Mm. And I, I can see a lot of potential in things. And I can't actualize that potential. <laughs> and that's certainly not the strength. And the other thing that comes to mind is just like, I think that a big strength of mine is that I'm kind of willing to ponder a lot and mm. not take things as absolutes as much as a lot of people do. And so I think that that helps in social situations where I'm trying to understand people's trains of thought. Mm. And it's easy for me to engage in thought experiments and, and stuff like that because I don't really believe in absolutes. Mm. And so there's a curiosity and a, and a non-dual way of thinking that I think is a strength of mine when I'm doing it right, but I'm not always good at doing it. Yeah. That sounds pretty accurate, to be honest. Like, based on my experiences with you, I would just add that, like, you have that ability to kind of, like, envision big things, but you also have a good ability to, like, make people feel comfortable stepping up to that plate. Like oh, it, okay. I think that's a strength that I've always noticed, like from the first time I met you, like when we did the Friday Night Folk interview, it was mm -hmm. just like the way that you're able to kind of like locate in insecurity or locate like whatever vibe a person needs to sort of feel comfortable and kind mm -hmm. of draw that out of whatever the conversation or the situation is. Mm. And I mean, I've seen you do it on an individual level or on a group level. And so I would say that coupled with the idea that you can make a big concept happen. Right. I think that's that's probably your greatest strength that I've seen. Well, thank you. I, <laughs> I would not have thought of that. Okay, so what do you think that your biggest strength is? Um, I don't know. It's. I mean, I would say maybe something... It's a similar deal where it's it's coupled with my greatest weaknesses, but... Yeah. I wonder if that's true for a lot of people, but... But I think it's probably something along the lines of kind of like reading people, reading subtext in social mm. situations. Mm -hmm. But my greatest weakness is sometimes knowing how and when to act on that when it's beneficial. It's like I have the ability to usually see those those things that are there, but I'm just jammed full of like social anxiety and biases and, and whatever that just prevent me from being a, a productive human being in those moments. That's 
two thirds correct. (laughs) 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 Okay, so you have an amazing strength in reading people and in empathizing with whatever you're reading. Hmm. Like every time that we talk through something a little bit more emotional, Hmm. you you go right to validating whatever the thing is Hmm. and then talking through why it is valid. And then if there is like an action plan that can be put in place, like you don't try to solve everybody's problems, but you let them know that you're constructive with people. Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm jealous of that. I could, I could stand to be a little bit more constructive with people and to listen better. You're a very good listener. And the other part where I think that like your disposition as a wallflower has like led to these amazing abilities to read people and these amazing abilities to like kind of track people's emotional movements a little bit. Mm. And I think you have your finger on that pulse in a really good way. You also are great at like introspecting and developing action plans for yourself. (laughs) And like if there's a change that you want to make, you tend to make it. That's not to say that you make it without any hesitation always, Mm. but you're able to track your own movements as well as the movements of others. And when you put your mind to something, you fucking do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good exercise. I like that exercise. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And that leads into, uh, we had talked in our weekly discussion group a few weeks back about pathology. Yeah. And, self-awareness and introspection through knowing where your desires come from or knowing where your fears and insecurities coming from. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about pathology in relation to chasing the dream, Mm -hmm. right? So when you say that I'm very good at noticing other people's like individuality in relation to my bigger dream of like when I set up an event space or when I set up a a studio to record a new podcast in or something and I want other people to be a part of that, Mm. I very much recognize that other people need to have their own part in that and not just be a part of my thing. Yeah. Pathologically speaking, that's because I've been asked to be a part of a lot of people's things. (laughs) (laughs) that like I haven't felt that my individuality can be a part of but they just need bodies yeah right yeah and you know I I just spoke for pathology on your end a little bit maybe a little bit out of out of turn but like I think that you're I don't know what makes you a wallflower but I know that being a wallflower has made you good at a few of the proclivities that you have and a few of the you know, sensitivities and your, your, your sympathetic ear. Well, I think it's, that's pathologically driven as well. Um, any skills yeah. that I have in that area. Cause it's, um, I mean, to a certain extent, I think it's dispositional for me. It's just kind of like, it's my wiring or my chemistry or my personality or whatever. Mm-hmm. But there were some vivid memories from my early life that I know contributed to it. Cause like, I grew up with all those like food allergies. Oh Yeah. And it sounds like a trivial thing, especially now, because it's like you develop a food allergy, you get an EpiPen and that's kind of it. You just don't eat that thing. It's like, not to say that it doesn't suck, but it's, it's a normalized Mm -hmm. thing now. Mm -hmm. But when I had them, I was for most of my life, the only kid 
in my school, maybe there was sometimes one or two other kids um, who had these and mm. they didn't know what the hell, like this was at a time when they kind of weren't a thing, at least where I was. Mm-hmm. And the field was still kind of new. So it was like this really weird thing, like in elementary school to be like, it's such a time of, of social learning, but you're not supposed to know that you're learning socially is one thing that I learned very quickly is like, uh. there's a lot of social learning that takes place. That's literally just, you're going from being like a primate to something that lives within an institution. Hmm. You know, you're learning how to walk in a line. You're learning how to like not scream in the middle of somebody's conversation or their point. Like you're, you're learning how to be a person. Mm-hmm. And part of that is a certain level of social comfort, specifically around food, because a lot of that bonding happens in the cafeteria, happens That's, at recess, yeah, happens at the when table. they hand out snacks. It's like the breaking bread thing. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like... That's where trust can be established. That's where friendships can be born. Like, it goes on and on. And one thing that happened very early in elementary school was they just decided there was a liability issue with me sitting at the table that I sat at with my friends. And I was a shy enough kid anyway, so it was like I was already heading down a path of, like, you know, not being the center of attention. But it was like, it was fine. Mm -hmm. And they put me at the peanut-free table, which had just been (laughs) invented. And that was like this little quarantine in the corner of the cafeteria where they just pretty much stuck like a lot of severely um, special needs kids mm-hmm. and me and their teachers. And I would just sit there. And I had a few friends that, thank God, came over there with me because <laughs> they didn't have to. But it was literally I was picked up, like grabbed by the arm from where I was sitting and told, you sit here now and you do that until you are a middle schooler. Mm-hmm. And this was like second grade, I think. And I just would sit over there, and because of the physical location of it, it was like Mm. I was watching the entire cafeteria. Mm. And I just remember watching, and I brought my own lunch so I didn't have to wait in the lunch line. And so, like, I remember just watching these social dynamics play out and watching peer groups kind of get formed and being asked these questions about why am I over here and why are we all over here and, like, having to answer them because second graders aren't that polite. So like, Hmm. you know, you just, you get kind of pinned down at times. And I just, for some reason, I was aware of those things at that time. And there were instances like that in like preschool and stuff too. But it was like, there were so many of those at so many pivotal points in my life Mm -hmm. that it just became my world. Hmm. And I learned a different type of social than other people did. But one of the, I guess, advantages on on some level of that was that I learned how they learned. And I learned how I learned because there was nothing to fucking do at that table except sit there and watch (laughs) how learning happens. And like, so yeah, it wasn't like this crazy isolating experience as much as that might make it sound like that. But it put me kind of as an outsider looking in Mm -hmm. very early in my life. And most of my earliest and most vivid memories are that at birthday parties, that in classrooms, that at lunch, that on sports teams. Like, so yeah, I think it just kind of taught me like, all right, this is your vantage point. Do something with that. And for some reason I had the headspace to screw around with it. So yeah, definitely it came from a pathology on some level, not necessarily a deep rooted one, but like it, it was something. Right. And yeah. And how do you think that that has related to like your current goals or maybe some of your past goals as well. Like your current goals, you're going into a master's program for social psychology now. I mean, that directly informs that. Right. <laughs> that that <laughs> yeah. was why, I don't remember if I said it on mic, but that was what made me kind of like 
really clicked with social psych was I've thought that way my entire life. And up until like two years ago, I did not know that it existed as a discipline. And I took Mm -hmm. a sociology class just kind of on a whim and was like, this is a thing? You can get a degree in this? Mm -hmm. Like, this is just what I think about all the time. This is just how I look at the world. And then I tried to get a sociology undergrad, but they didn't have one. So I was like, fuck it, I'll get a social psych. I don't know what the hell that is, but I guess it's probably close. <laughs> yeah. And I got that. And then I was like, holy shit, this is what I thought I liked about sociology. Like, this is even better. And it was like this more narrow, like, I, I don't give a shit about the interactions of large groups. I give a shit about why the people in those groups act in a certain way that leads to those interactions. And hmm. I was like, oh my good God, this is literally what my brain has been doing since I was four. Like all hmm. of my earliest memories of the world are apparently something you can get a degree in. And I was just, it felt like I was backfilling, <laughs> like instead of like learning, oh, this is how this works. It was like, that's hmm. what that's called, or that's what this is actually called, or that's who discovered this, or all these things that I just kind of had my own terms for, had my own colloquial understandings of. It was like, yeah. Oh my God, people study this shit. So hmm. it directly informs my goals there. And it also informs stuff like the running or stuff like a lot of what I've done in music, like the desire to like make something of myself is something mm-hmm. that I cannot turn down. It's not always healthy, but it's just something that I like. I cannot live with mm-hmm. that not being fulfilled. And I think that's probably a function of feeling like the sickly kid for so much of my life. Like, yeah. I feel like I got something to prove because otherwise I'm just a fucking liability. Okay. Well, that answered my next question. (laughs) (laughs) So I kind of have a chip on my shoulder at all times I've found and like, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to ask what, how, how has that played in? How has that informed the way that you make or display or uh, engage in artwork? Yeah, it just makes me um, very insecure and very cocky, I think, at the same time. It's like, (laughs) it comes out of this feeling that like at the age when everybody gets sent to school with a PB&J and a bag lunch, Mm -hmm. that's the equivalent of me being sent to school with a cyanide pill. So it's kind of like, that does something to you. And that makes me want to be like, well, if I can't eat your food or if I can't play the way the other kids play I'm going to be really fucking good at guitar or I'm going to be really fucking good at running or whatever it is I don't always hit that mark but it makes me like feel that I need to in order to validate my own existence Mm -hmm. it's gotten healthier now it's not quite that stark now but for a long time that's how I thought and now it's a little bit more like all right, let's keep the drive because that's good but let's maybe like work on the language Mm -hmm. because it's not always healthy yeah, it's I have a thing that could kill me that everybody sees as something that makes me weak. Now I have to have something that makes me strong too. Yeah, it's literally just like your pro-social is my anti-social. Your yeah. big banquet mm-hmm. dinner is my fucking war zone. Mm. So how do I make that work, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, what about you? When we talk about pathology, I have to think of like... I spent a few years, not alone alone, but, you know, my sister got pregnant in in her teens and that was where the focus shifted to, Mm. you know. And so I was 12 years old at the time and then there was a a newborn baby in the house Mm. and um, I had like... (laughs) just been diagnosed with depression as you know a, a sixth grader yeah 
And the solution seemed to be like, put him in the counselor's office. This, I'm sure there was more thought that went into it than this, but it was very much like, put him in the counselor's office, put him on Prozac. We got to take care of this baby. Yeah. And if I were in my parent's situation, I don't know that I would have done anything any differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, what can you do? Yeah, it's like a um, triage. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I was very much developing some of those like young adult quirks in middle school as a person who was like completely alone, save for some of his weird friends. <laughs> like, I had this very specific experience of being not necessarily an outsider, but kind of. Mm. And when I was 13, I read The Chocolate War for English class. Mm. And it was like immediately contested by specifically parents who went to my church. Yeah. And it was the first book that I read that I could connect with the protagonist in a very emotional way. And the depression that he was experiencing was the depression that I was experiencing. And the outcastedness that he was experiencing was the same like lack of belonging that I experienced so often. And that lack of belonging was exacerbated by the fact that suddenly <laughs> my whole fucking church community was against this book that I adored mm. and needed yeah. at that point in my life. And that was, that felt like, I'm going to tear up. That felt immediately like I had been ostracized because I liked something. I loved something that was wholeheartedly rejected by both my family and my church. Yeah. And I spent the next many years just thinking like, well, first it was just a lot of rebellion, mm -hmm. but where that links into pathology for me is that I spent years thinking the only way that I'm ever going to be known by anybody mm -hmm. is if I write that book oh. or a, you know, a book that connects with people in that same way. Yeah. Like I need to write a best-selling novel that tells my story in a way that is like, that does for someone else what that book did for me. Yeah. My ventures, I mean, I played guitar and I wrote songs for fun before that happened and everything, but like my ventures into making art were really fueled by like, no one's ever going to actually know me. Mm. And more than that, I need to reach the heights of fame so that when those feelings of mine are expressed in art, it will be bigger than this community. Yeah. Like I can't afford anymore for those feelings to be shot down and rejected by family, by anyone. So I had this idea of chasing the dream that was all about the only way self-expression is possible and permissible is if I can reach the point where my words are being consumed by enough people <laughs> that the people in my immediate surroundings, my family, my church, whatever, have no say over who hears them. Yeah. That manifested in some very selfish ways. Mm. And around the time that I was like, I don't know, around the time I turned 30 or so, that turned that went from an I to a we. Mm -hmm. 
and I stopped worrying so much about me being heard and me being the one who is doing all the expressing and started realizing, and I've had this feeling on and off, um, and so, but it manifests in selfish ways more so than communal ways, mm-hmm. um, especially in, in some points in my twenties, but, um, <laughs> but, you know, having the resources and having the understanding and developing enough empathy to realize that that's probably a lot of people probably came by that, that same feeling some way. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have their own sensitivities and their own reasons for self-expression or, or, and reasons for having hesitation in participating in the ways that we self-express and the ways that we socialize and the ways that we are seen and known by our community and, and by society. Mm. So I've become pretty sensitive to that over time. I'm not always as sensitive as I could be. Mm. I still do let ego get in my way sometimes, but that's where that has come from for me. So it has gone from, and this is what I was talking about in the episode with Andy, you know, it's not that I don't still want to express myself and have people know me through my art. Like that is so ideal. Yeah. But the pathology has led to a point where I've shifted to, if I can let my guard down just enough so that this can be a we instead of an I. Yeah. Then I don't have to worry about me, 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 me. Then I can worry about what I can also do for others. And if I let myself get close enough to others, then they'll see me anyway. Yeah. And I think it's it's honestly more, there's more practicality to that that initial goal of like, I have to write this book than it might initially appear. Because it's, I mean, life is just so much carrot and stick for all of it the whole time. And it's like, that is the purest, simplest carrot and the Mm -hmm. rest of every fucking part of your existence is stick in a moment like that. So it's like, I've I've noticed at least for, for myself and it seems like from the way you've described your own experience here, like it's, it's a matter of like slowly opening that window ever so slightly over the course of your life and just gradually trusting that like, if you open it, it's not going to slam shut again. And like, you start to like discover different nuances that are involved with that goal or start even just defining the terms as you go along. Like mm-hmm. the idea of fame is such a perfect one for that because it's it's just a state of being that other people kind of enjoy on your behalf. You know, you, you're just still doing your thing. So like after a while, like yeah. fame is for certain people, autonomy or, or wealth or or like I, I completely relate to your example that it's just kind of transcending like the bullshit a little bit. It's like yeah. people can't touch you. You get to create your own circle and your own mm-hmm. kind of like safety line. And that's, yeah, I, I completely see the the benefit to that. But it's, that's something kind of neat to me about setting a goal like that, whether consciously or unconsciously at, at that stage of your life is like as you grow and you start to morph it with other goals or start to like lose faith in certain aspects of it or just your interests change or your you know yourself better or whatever the hell happens like mm-hmm. you define those terms as a consequence of that and you start to understand more it, it, almost more fully what you want mm. in life than you would have if you didn't have that experience I think yeah and it's not to say that that carrot and the stick weren't present before I read that book Like I still wanted to be, you know, (laughs) in the famous grunge band. But I think that like it's at that early age when 
I think a lot of people have that thought, like they, they want to be famous. They want to be well known for something, especially if they identify something about themselves that's a little bit exceptional or a little bit, you know, if they have a, a story that stands out. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah. And, but I, and I have this thought still pretty regularly, like I just want to be bigger than this. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mean I want to make more money. I don't mean I want to be more well known. I don't I mean some things that just crop up around everyday life. Yeah. Seems so minuscule and so mundane. Yeah. And you're just like, how is this a thing? How is this important to anybody? Yeah. You know, and you just want grandeur, but also what about the things four rungs below grandeur? Like I'd settle for <laughs> <laughs> over, you know, small town life or over, you know, like, and there are great things about small town life. All the librarians know me. It's great. I love it. But, <laughs> but at the same time, I'm like, how are these issues that I'm dealing with? Yeah. Yeah. You know? How am I, how are we this surprised? I remember I'm rambling now, but like, <laughs> Um, you know, I've, I've, I've been in a position for the past five years or so where I, I have worked with, uh, building rentals and some of them have been with movie productions that have come to town, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've rented out space to Hollywood people and I've gotten to talk with a few of them and, you know, it's like I find myself going like this is the pace that I'm supposed to be working at yeah <laughs> you know like these this is the the mind meld that I want with like that kind of people but then I had this thought because one of them I I didn't work with with these folks but daddy's home too was filmed mm. partially in in town and I guess like Will Ferrell was there and Mark Wahlberg of course was, <laughs> was there and I've never met Walt, Mark Wahlberg. I've had several conversations with Artie Wahlberg, <laughs> uh, the eldest of the Wahlbergs. <laughs> I've met him a few times. He's a cool guy. But yeah, so there was all this to do about Will Ferrell being in town and they're like the local p- papers are printing, you know, pictures of kids on the sidewalk getting their picture taken with Will Ferrell. And I'm like, I was thinking about it, like, that's such a great experience for that kid to have. First of mm-hmm. all, like, yeah, they're gonna have that picture forever. Like they're, they have the, the picture taken with Elf. That's awesome with Buddy. The yeah, Elf. yeah. At the same time, I don't want to be a person that makes such a big deal out of a couple movie stars being in town. Yeah, I don't want to be a part of the milieu that that celebrates that as if it's never going to happen again and it's the highlight of the whole goddamn year. Or that it's never going to happen to them. Like, that's the other part when people act like that. I'm always like, you treating this person like they're some other creature. Yeah. It's just you acknowledging that you you are locked into what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I am scared to fucking death of that being the case. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah I, I totally get what you mean man yeah and, and that's not to say that I want to be a movie star like I've never really had those aspirations specifically yeah but I don't feel that that is inherently a separate class of people yeah you know and I don't like it being treated that way and I don't like it being talked about that way but at the same time 
if that separateness and that celebrity didn't exist, it wouldn't be such a big deal to that yeah. kid getting their photo taken with Buddy the Elf. Yeah. So it's like both kind of have to exist, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I think that there is a separateness too. Like as much, that's something that honestly, I probably shit on this when we talked about like influencers and stuff. I don't know if mm -hmm. we made it in, but it's that whole concept that like we want our celebrities to be just like us. Mm. That is insane to me. Or honestly, too, these, the same like thing for when they talk about why is this NBA player making $60 million a year when Joe Sixpack is, is struggling to get by for minimum wage? They, they ought to be mm. making $60 million. It's always shit like that. I'm like, you wouldn't watch basketball if they weren't making $60 million a year. Have you ever watched a high school basketball game that you weren't directly involved with? Or like, <laughs> would you really give a shit about this this actor? if they were the same quality of actor, but they just like, you know, did your local community theater thing. They weren't mm -hmm. like Mark Wahlberg flying around and jet setting. You wouldn't read magazines about that person. Mm -hmm. That, that otherness is part of what makes it so fascinating. And, and to me, it's, it can be done in a balanced way where it's like, you can acknowledge like we're all part of the same like species here. Like we're all still human beings. We, we have that, but like at the same time, like, oh shit, these guys are getting to live in a different walk of life than me, that's cool. Like that fascination can be fostered in a healthy way. Yeah. And especially it's, it's apparent with like movie stars and stuff, because especially anytime you meet anybody who's, who's kind of jumped that, that rung and, and is hanging out up there. And they're always, for the most part, like the ones I've met, at least the, it's not a ton, but like they're pretty cool with talking normally. Mm -hmm. Like they're not like, <laughs> They don't need you to kiss a ring or anything like that. Uh -huh. It's just, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I think that dichotomy is is healthy in a way, but it's it's uh, it's more nuanced than just us and them. Because mm -hmm. so much of it is just their shit's finally being validated. You know, like have you felt that as like just a creative that like the idea of making it to that next place that everybody who succeeded is in is part of it's just people finally can put you in a box that they understand so we can stop talking about this fucking box or like this day job instead of this box, like that kind of stuff. Like there's, I would say like 40% of my desire to be a famous musician is just so that people stop asking me how much I make or mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. It's just so I don't have to talk about being a fucking musician. Like I want to be famous so that I don't have to acknowledge this anymore, you know? Because people yeah. will be like, oh, I saw him on American Idol. He's that. I'm an accountant, I'm a firefighter, okay, we're all safe. Mm -hmm. You get rid of the disbelief. Yeah, but right yeah. now we're in that like weird, like, I'm an artist, oh, so like, how much do you make? How do you <laughs> do that? <laughs> it's like, oh, God, mm -hmm. like 20 years of this? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I've always done both, so yeah. I don't really necessarily have the perspective of... <laughs> I don't, I, I've never said that being a musician is like my primary occupation. Like there's always something else that I've done. Actually, it was nice for a little bit to say, you know, when I was a writer and a writer. Yeah. I could just say that I was a writer. That was nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's the validation. It's the, it's the approval. It's, um, what is it? There's the, the, the things that are covered in the, in the Sedona method. It's like, what do we have a desire for? This is mm -hmm. something that we've been talking about on, on the liturgist a lot. The desire for approval, safety, and separateness. And there's something else. I think it's three things, but there might be something else. Um, so like 
The way that I've desired separateness is I want to be apart from these systems and ideologies and institutions that I felt have betrayed me or not let me in or in some way have cast me out or threatened to cast me out if I don't belong in the right way. Yeah. Right? So, like, I want to be above that. Yeah. Or I can try my best to be a, like, sole proprietor of the very thing which I'm threatened by and mm. be the right version of it for other people. Mm. And that's kind of what we were talking about before. It is a desire for approval both from, like, the people who are, like, the gatekeepers of that upper echelon that you're not a part of yet but you want to be a part of. And, like, once you have their approval, then yeah. you gain the approval of those who are, like... I don't want to use the word lower, but like, you know, in that sort of more simpleton space. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and you have their approval by just by virtue of like being more well-known, you know? Yeah. And it's like yeah. suddenly I don't have to worry about fitting in. I don't have to worry about it. And that makes you feel safe or like you assume. Yeah. That once you get there, you'll feel safe. Yeah. But will you actually? But that, I think it's kind of twofold, though. You might not feel safe or deeply secure in, like, the philosophical sense. Like, you might still be yearning for something. You might not be, you know, the wherever you are, here mm -hmm. you are thing, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Like, you might not be in that headspace, but you will be markedly safer yeah. than yeah. somebody who's still trying to climb the ladder. Because it's in, in a way, you're just demonstrating your value to your tribe for lack of a better term like you're just putting it in a language that everybody can understand that like i am earning my keep not that there's any like currency or or you know it's not quite that discreet but at the same time it's uh i think that that feeling is so predictable for a reason like it's one of those things that like and this is from the perspective of somebody who is not in that safe <laughs> like successful place like this is a dangerous it, all, it reminds me of the Shackleton thing, you know, where they're going through that passage and they're just getting whipped by the wind and the waves and the shit's blowing off of their boat. Like, it feels like that Which sometimes. Which time? That's true. The last time. The, uh, the one <laughs> right before they got rescued, that long journey. Okay. Where they're talking about, like, their, the tarps are getting ripped off and, like, gales are coming and just that feeling of exposure and not the kind that the bartenders try to pay you in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that's, that's what I always think of when, not so much when you're like 19, like that's a different kind of like angsty thing, but like, as you get older and people solidify their paths, there is a, a definite lack of safety mm. to not having a definition for what you're doing that everybody can understand. Cause right. even as simple as getting fucking health insurance, like mm. shit starts to get a little bit flaky as you go on. Mm. And so, yeah, I think it, it's both the internal kind of I am content with where I am and I'm I'm cool with settling for certain things, trying to achieve other things. And then there's the kind of more practical, my peers know what to call me. My parents know what to tell their friends when they ask what I'm doing with my life. Mm -hmm. I, I can go to the doctor if I have to go to the doctor or I'm comfortable not having to do that because I'm in a certain echelon that everybody understands, whatever, like whatever it is. Mm. Um, I don't think you have to be rich or famous or whatever for, for that, but you, I think you do eventually have to fit into a groove in order to achieve that 
that cover. And that cover provides a very practical purpose. It doesn't make or break your existence as a human, but it makes it a hell of a lot easier. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good metaphor. The open boat, the open boat, vo- the open boat, <laughs> the open boat voyage. <laughs> that's a tough one, though, man. That's... <laughs> That's like an actual tongue twister. <laughs> Sometimes I get a little bit of a stutter, but that one, <laughs> man, <laughs> the open boat voyage of Ernest Shackleton. <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Like all of the, everything that you're exposed to along the way to what you th- like, what is definitively the next mile marker but also what is like what you think is where you need to go, you know, Mm -hmm. which is not always where you need to go. But the way along a certain career path does have certain definitive mile markers, but it also has certain almost like superficial mile markers that you've like, this is how you will feel when you get there. Yeah. You know, and that's not always true. That's not definitive at all. But like, then there are the mile markers that are just like, well, until I (laughs) can get the health insurance or until I can experience some kind of security in this, then I can't say that I am like that thing successfully. Right. Yeah. But then like you hit one mile marker doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to feel more successful. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to feel more outside of the realm of like consequence that you came from. Mm-hmm. You know, that you might be trying to escape or be bigger than. And um, I still struggle with that feeling. I still, I'm going to reuse that phrase because I think it's perfect for how I feel about it. I still feel that I want to be outside the realm of consequence. Mm. Of the conditional system that I was raised in. You know, like you want to be outside yeah. of that. And in many ways I am. Mm. And in many ways I still want to know that I can run farther from it at a moment's notice and have the resources to do it and have, you know, the sort of fan base that will help me run faster Mm. if I feel the need to run faster. But there's a decent percentage of it that is and always will be a need to run. And so... (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) But this is kind of what we were talking about in our discussion group is part of knowing your pathology and part of knowing where your strengths and weaknesses are is categorizing the weakness as weakness and not as flaw. Yeah, I really liked that point. Yeah. Yeah. So the point that I was making was if you just say like, this is the way I am. And the example I used was, you know, I'm just bad at feeling like I belong within community and therefore I'm just not going to try, you know, mm-hmm. therefore it's just, it, that is my flaw, that is my downfall, is that I always feel like an outcast. I never feel like my ideals are shared by other people. Mm. Does that mean that I just am always a wallflower? Does that mean that I never participate in anything or never meet new people? It Mm. might if I categorize it as a flaw and a foregone conclusion about myself. But if I instead say, well, my weakness is X, And there might be a very valid pathology to that weakness, and it might be very difficult to surpass. But if you call it a weakness, that means that you can strengthen it. Yeah. Whereas if you call it a flaw, 
it's semantics really, but I mean, that has more of a connotation of like, yeah, that's just my Achilles heel. Yeah, no, it's valid. Cause I mean, yeah, flaw is, it's fixed and it's yeah. permanent and it's yeah. something you have to work around. Yeah. Whereas a weakness, if we've learned anything from our collective knees, uh, a weakness <laughs> is something <laughs> you can work on. It might hurt like hell. It might take forever. Yeah. But yeah, it, it, there's at least a path through it. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of how I'm trying to frame all this now is there's still a dream. The dream is mostly that I just want to have a catalog of work mm. and get out of my own way when it comes to cultivating that catalog mm. and not be so nitpicky and not kiss. Because, okay, that's the other thing is like, I've talked about this on mic. Yeah. But like, I am so concerned with the way that I will be seen is through art. So the mm -hmm. art better be the way that I want to be seen. <laughs> there are the art better reflect how I want to be seen yeah. when it is released. And so I concern myself way too much with that. And so I talked about this on Mike already. It's one of my like new year's resolutions is to work on that, putting out this live album. We'll see <laughs> how I feel about that <laughs> end product. And if it actually even gets released, yeah. uh, <laughs> Um, no, it's going to come out. It's sounding pretty decent so far. So, but yeah, so, so one of my, one of the things that I want to work on, one weakness that I would like to strengthen is that I care too much about how a final product is and I, I equate it with my social value or I equate it with, I guess social value is a good word for it. Mm. And, and so I equate it with how I'm seen. Yeah. So knowing that that is my pathology, knowing that that's where I came from, I can't change that that's where I came from. I can't change that that was my past. Yeah. But what I can do is say, look at all of the strengths that that has made me develop. And for all of those strengths, for all of the art that I've been able to make because I've had that drive, hmm. for all of the growing that I've had to do, because I've had to overcome a lot of those like stumbling blocks that have kept me from connecting with people as well as I would have had I not needed their approval so badly or had I not felt like I just want to be beyond this already. Yeah. Having to overcome those has strengthened me and has allowed me to grow. And if all I have left to do, maybe not all I have left to do, but if... <laughs> You know, after all of that, if I need to deal with this one thing to feel a little bit better and to make myself more productive and to make myself less insecure, at least I think that's what it'll accomplish. Yeah. <laughs> I hope it does. If all I have to do is say, okay, let's just start putting out more stuff and not equate it with how I'm seen and not equate it with legacy and not be like, where does this fit into the fucking biopic that'll be made about me? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a whole rabbit hole, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think in those like grandiose terms anymore, but I sure did used to. Um, Even that's so important as an artist or a creative, yeah. anything that's... Where, where does it fit in the timeline? Yeah. <laughs> what kind of scene is this? Yeah. Because that's how you learn how to 
be and how to look for that type of life. You it's know? modeled like you, for you. Yeah. Yeah. You watch the VH1 movies or you read the books, or you listen to the records and then do all those things. Like, mm-hmm. and that's what all those people are doing in your world is, you know, you're watching the movie that somebody made about them. So it's like, it's the framework, I think, at least for a while. But it is funny when you look back after that bubble pops and you kind of like look back <laughs> and realize like, this is insane. Yeah. There's no biopic. No one gives a shit. Yeah. So I kind of made those those last like 15 minutes kind of all about me, but. No, that's uh, good, man. Yeah. No, but what do you, what are you feeling now? As far as chasing the dream, as far as like being in tune with your, like harmonizing with your pathology in some way that eases the tension between you mm. and your like highest artistic ambitions. I mean, I'm pretty in line with a lot of what you've said spiritually. Um, like one thing that I've really noticed that's changed is it's just broadened. Like a lot of, I was pinning myself down or, or like trying to almost like typecast myself. And there were also times where I think I had been kind of typecast to a lesser extent, but like, Whatever the case was, I, I found that there was this narrow lane that I felt like I had to inhabit mm-hmm. to be an artist. And so it was like that coupled with the idea that like I can't be a quote unquote normal person or I, I, I'm not in that world. So I have to be in this world and this world is this like there was this just fucked up binary to it that I just kind of like. Like I said, it's what I got from like the VH1 movies and stuff like that. Like that's the world that I constructed based on what I saw my idols doing. And uh that always has caused problems. I haven't always acknowledged them, but it's always caused problems because I, I tend to get easily interested in stuff. And then once I'm interested in it, I go deep and I, I just decide I'm going to try to do this thing. And it's just how I have to frame stuff mentally in order to to get into it enough to actually take it on board. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I have to, like if I got really into baseball tomorrow, there would have to be that little molecule of me that thinks I'm going to be the oldest and they'll be drafty. (laughs) I'm going to do it. (laughs) They're going to write a book and make a biopic about it. So like that's, I don't know. That's just how I frame stuff like that. And it gets me really pumped up. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually I move on to the other one. It's just, it's fun. It's just dreaming, you know? Um, And I think what I've allowed myself to do in recent years that has been really healthy as an artist and otherwise uh, has just been allowing that view to expand Mm -hmm. to kind of, absorb those other interests and to consider like, well, how in the hell does this fit in? Partially, I think I just realized there is no plan. Like nobody has any idea. The artist that movie was made about doesn't give a shit Mm -hmm. that there was a movie and didn't know there was going to be a movie. But I bet they had some of these same insecurities. And then the idea that like nobody knows exactly what they're doing. So it's like there's no gold standard, you know, for like, the path or like, this is Mm -hmm. what we should be doing. And I'm deviant because I'm over here and I wanting to be a guitar player. Like there's no rules. So kind of being at peace with that. And then, and honestly, just by acknowledging that and like indulging some of my other interests, I've found that it sort of hooked back around. And some of these things that I thought were wholly incompatible ended up being present in other people that I looked up to. Like, um, I, I don't remember if we've talked about this, but have you ever heard of, uh, Ben Gibbard from Death Cab. Yeah. He he's an ultra marathoner. Yeah. That's insane. Like <laughs> never in my life. Like I like Death Cab and I've always kind of looked at like, okay, there's like the touring musicians and like that side of my head. And then there's like these people who run a hundred miles and I really want to do that too. But you don't do those two things in the same lifetime. Cause how would you? And then I find out he 
literally does both of those things. He goes out and tours theaters and then he goes and runs a hundred miles and he started that journey on a treadmill on tour. Huh, and okay. I'm always kind of like that. Honestly, that was kind of the moment when all of this crystallized for me was just realizing like, Oh, you can do whatever the hell you want. Like certain stuff's going to be mutually exclusive just from a logistical standpoint or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or like at a certain point, you're going to age out of certain things. Like there's, there are going to be, certain boundaries but like a lot of those don't exist and you can kind of mess with stuff a little bit and then you become the model for someone else who's coming up and that it's like yeah I, i've really been trying to embrace that as much as i can for the last couple of years and it's been uncomfortable as hell at a lot of points but it's also been incredibly exciting and has helped me to kind of in a way depathologize that pathology like not look at it as a pathology but just look at it as like this is my human experience i fucking resent it yeah in a lot of ways but it's also there is no unresentable one there's your mindset about it but there's no again there's no gold standard like there's no life that we all should have been living Mm -hmm. so it's just almost calling it a pathology feels weird to me sometimes because it's it's just like how would we have known that we were deviating from something? Right. Yeah. Enough to call it a pathology. Yeah. So I don't know. I've, I've kind of been enjoying exploring that. And some of that is what always comes up when we talk to Dickens, which is that like when you identify as something, it means that the other thing is extraneous. Mm-hmm. It means that like whatever else you are, if you if you have two interests and you're making money at one, Mm-hmm. then the other is relegated to a hobby. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you have multiple interests and one is like what you are known for, then suddenly the other thing is not who you are. It's just a thing you do on the side. Yeah. So like how could you run or uh, be an ultra marathoner and be, you know, a touring musician? Yeah. Like how could you be both of those things? And it's just that we want to be seen for something, you know, it's just, and and some people like maybe they are an accountant and they don't really consider that their identity, but like, you know what they do with their, they're like all over Reddit forums about something that they're an expert in that is a hobby of theirs. Mm -hmm. And like, you can be an expert in a hobby and that's just as much of your, of your identity as like, what you do for a living, which doesn't have to be a part of your identity at all. It can just be a paycheck. Yeah. And I think that that's, yeah, I've found myself immobilized by those thoughts a lot. Because first it was like, I want to teach English. And that was the other thing. Like, even when I wanted to teach English, I found over time that it was because I had these romanticized thoughts about like, that's how I'm going to like really live up to this calling that I feel because... I can I can teach this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that had such an impact on me, you know, like I can be the one to administer that feeling, that that great feeling of not alone anymore. Yeah. To these yeah. kids. Who am I to assume that they'll need the assigned reading <laughs> as much as I did at the age of 13? Yeah. But like that's where I found solace in the English classroom and in the library as a teenager mm. because those were the experiences that I needed to have and, and needed to keep having. But something didn't feel right to me 
about being a teacher. And so I stopped pursuing it mm. before I went like all the way with the degree and everything. And I'm glad that I did because I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But and like, even though I did enjoy my time, like when I was doing my practicum at my old high school and like on my way to being a student teacher and on my way to getting my certificate and everything, like it was enjoyable because of the way that I got to be in community. There was a lot of like stuff surrounding that, that felt right. And that felt like I was participating in, in really nice ways. Mm -hmm. But there was also like, I don't know that this day in day out teaching the same <laughs> curriculum every year, like, I don't know. Being being a teacher seems kind of exhausting to me yeah. um, for a lot of different reasons. And among those reasons that I d it didn't feel right, I think, was that it was I needed it for me and the way that it was going to be for other people was a fantastical way. Yeah. You know, it was like a very romanticized notion of every English teacher in every fucking movie. Yeah. <laughs> you <yeah>. know, like, <laughs> yeah, I was going to be Paul Rudd and the person being a wallflower. Yeah. <laughs> but that impact has to be had on people anyway. So if I yeah. put myself in positions where I can give advice when I'm asked to answer when called upon to help others with their visions and their needs. Yeah. Then I'm having that same, maybe not the same impact, but close enough. So it doesn't have to be the way that it's portrayed in the movies. Yeah. It doesn't, and, it, and it doesn't have to be, I don't have to be that teacher that assigned that book to me in eighth grade. Yeah. Um, I love her for it. But that doesn't mean that it has to become my entire purpose to like continue chasing that feeling again. Well, that's what I mean by the, the carrot and the stick thing too earlier was it's like you kind of need that almost uncarved block at a certain point in your life to just give you something to grab onto or something to visualize or to attach to that feeling or that dream. But mm. then it's cool how like over the course of your life, you can start to like peel back layers of it or start to see nuances that weren't there before or even just understanding how sheerly practical and logistical certain aspects of it are where like like say, you know, the English teacher example, it's like, well, that comes with this salary or that has these hours and you have to follow this curriculum. And like you start to learn those things and it's like eventually those downsides come with other realizations of a go, like, oh, well, this is the thing I liked about it though. And I don't necessarily need this specific job description to administer this feeling. And like, it's, it's neat how you can drift off of that course, but not really leave the trajectory you want it to be on. Right, right. It's like it reminds me a lot of when we've talked about the idea of being famous as as musicians specifically and um, you know how like when you're younger and everybody wants to like play at the stadium and it's kind of the big like want to do Wembley. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, but mm -hmm. like typically that's like you see the Freddie Mercury there and you're like that. I want to do some version of that. And it's, this is not to say that I wouldn't play a stadium tomorrow if offered. But, um, I, you know, at a certain point I realized like I don't – think that that's what I want. I, mm -hmm. I want like a theater. Like I started to realize that it's not the idea that there's 75,000 people out there and I hear myself booming through a mile and a half of PA speakers. It was like, I just realized like, no, I want the consistency of knowing that there is probably going to be a crowd. Mm -hmm. 
I'd like there it to be a big enough place that there's a dressing room or some kind of a green room situation that I can go and like retreat to when I need to come up and come down. Mm-hmm. It's a place that's designed for music, so there will be good sound and good lights, and you know, this is supposed to happen here. Right. And at the end of the day, I make enough money to pay whoever I need, buy whatever comforts I need to make it like a doable thing day to day. That isn't beating the shit out of me, but also, you know, I, I'm I'm working. I'm out doing it. And so it, it went from being like, I want to play Wembley and like just jet set around and be like in excess in those documentaries I used to watch. And then down to just like, no, I'd, I'd kind of like to be like Crowded House or something like that, you know, like, mm, yeah, I want to do that. It just sounds amazing. It looks cool as hell. They get to go to some secret cavern after the show and like just decompress or whatever. Like they get to stay at a hotel that they're not worried about. Like that's, that's a nice middle ground. Mm-hmm. But I would never have found those nuances as a kid. Like I never would have found it was that Wembley or bust. Yeah. I didn't think about the lifestyle that was sort of attendant in that, that dream or the potentially like roller coaster mm-hmm. existence you'd have. So it's funny. It just evens out as you go. 